Jalen Carter, David Ma, and Nate LeBlanc. Three underground rap nerds walked into a bar. An argument ensued about who the goats are. The seed was a thought that would turn into a pod. Now fans worldwide say... Not a bad job, the ad hoc cab squad Who chronicles the vanguard of hip-hop at large Rap taste slacked off, don't need to be mad, dog. Look no further, it's the dad bod Rap pod, 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 pod. Podcasting live from San Jose, California It is the dad bod rap pod Airhorn full squad today Myself It's been a while Damone Carter, aka Dim One, here with y'all. I am joined, as I always am, by my brethren, Nate LeBlanc. What's happening, man? Uh, doing good. Uh, good to see you guys. It seems so weird that we all hung out in person last week, and it feels like ten years ago already. Right. So much has happened since then. I'm I'm so over LA. No, I'm not. <laughs> uh, Dave still managing to rock a Scully in eighty degree weather. How's it? <laughs> it's going okay. I'm I'm losing the. Um the front the battle on the allergy front but otherwise yeah. it's good to see you um yeah like nate said we were just together one week ago but that seemed like a year ago strangely so yeah that that's old news always had, when we connect though yeah absolutely um and we're we're happy to have a special guest with us uh for this roundtable segment want to bring on the program author who just dropped a, a new book um, about DJ Screw called DJ Screw, A Life in Slow Revolution. Welcome to the podcast, Lance Scott Walker. How's it going, man? I'm, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Who is joining us from uh, a Whataburger uh, parking lot in uh, <laughs> <laughs> somewhere deep in the heart of Texas where all my exes live. Um, I'm, in the park- I'm actually in the parking lot of, um, of Hype Waco, which is a, a clothing store here in um in, in Waco, Texas, which is where I just did an event. No Whataburger in sight, but I'm sure that it's not far. No, it's 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 somewhere. They're off in the distance. Thanks for making the time. So yeah, we're uh, we're very interested. Uh, we're pretty literate here on this program. Nate is our uh, the guy who reads most of all the books that come our way. We were able to get copies of of your book. Um, can you talk about like what made you want to? even do a book about DJ screwing? Why did you think you were the person to do it? I wanted to do a book about DJ screw because, well, there wasn't one. Um, started looking into one um, when I was working on the book Houston Rap, which I started in 2005. And I, I was working with the photographer, Peter Best, and we were studying really all of Houston. You know, we were we were talking about the screwed up click, but we were also talking about the ghetto boys and rap a lot records and wish a house and South park coalition and all really all the different movements in in Houston. But, you know, I got interested in the idea of a book on on DJ screw based on, you know, the stories that people were telling me about him and the picture of the person that they were painting. I mean, I got a picture of the artist, for sure, you know, and I kind of had an idea of the the artist anyway, because you know, <clears throat> I'm from Galveston, Texas, but I lived in Houston, Texas, all throughout this this period from '92 to to '06. So it's through through that entire run where you know where Screw was making music and he was alive in Houston, um, and um, you know what re- what really made me want to write the book was the, s- the stories people told about the person, not the artist. You know, the artist was one thing. The artist was obviously very, you know, super influential and 
really important to the di- different movements in Houston, even if there weren't movements that uh, he necessarily led, you know, stuff like Swisher House and, you know, Beltway 8 records and, you know, all these kind of different movements that spawned off from him. But really, it was the stories about the person and people's relationships with that person and the love that they had for him that was just so palpable all these years after he died. You know, he'd been dead for four years whenever I started this project. And mm. the way that people talked about him, they still very obviously carried a lot of love in their hearts for him. And it was very obvious that he had, he had a lot of love for the people around him and they still felt it. Uh, thank you for explaining that, man. You know, um, I was reading the beginning of the book and I just, and maybe it was just the foreword. I'm not sure where it was, but you wrote that, that you're, and I quote, a white punk rocker from Galveston Island. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that just made me sort of wonder, what was your personal musical journey with Screws Music? Like how you discovered it, how it, how it strikes you, all that. Uh, well, you know, my relationship with hip hop goes back to middle school when it, in, I was in sixth grade in 1984 when, you know, really all the hip hop movies started coming out and, you know, Fat Boys and Run DMC broke. Um, you know, you had Curtis Blow, you had UTFO, Roxanne Shante, you know, that whole kind of movement was an early, you know, early for me and kind of the first music that, you know, kids in my middle school kind of felt like belonged to them because it was, you know, it was such a, a now generation kind of music, even though hip hop had been around for 10 years by then, that was when it was really breaking through and really reaching people. Um, and, and hip hop through Africa Mambada led me to punk rock and heavy metal. And, uh, and then those became, you know, parallel loves of mine, you know, through the years. Uh, I moved to Houston in 1992, which was when ghetto boys were, were breaking nationally, you know, with mind playing tricks. So that was really what was going on in Houston when I moved there. But over the next few years, you know, you couldn't go, you couldn't move around Houston without hearing DJ Screw. You couldn't move around Houston without hearing a, a car drive by and and Screw's music pumping out of it. So it became this sort of atmospheric quality, you know, of living in Houston where, you know, you heard the music everywhere and it became part of your experience, just like, you know, hearing even more so than like hearing rock music or anything like that, you know, hearing Screw music hearing Tejano music. Those were things that you heard in cars um, all the time. So it's part of the tapestry of sound that you hear in Houston. And it, and it, it fits, you know, I think the reason that so many people connected with screws music in Houston was because like Houston's hot, it's slow. You got to drive everywhere, you know, and, and this, you know, screws music just is a perfect soundtrack for that. You know, not to mention the fact that he's talking about streets in Houston. He's talking about neighborhoods in Houston. You know, the people on the tapes are, are rapping about their streets, their neighborhoods, their, you know, their, their culture. And um, so, you know, even being somebody who didn't n- grow up in that scene by any measure, um, you know, it was still part of the, the, the culture of Houston. And I have a deep, deep love for Houston. And so, you know, th- those are the things that along with the, the story I mentioned earlier about just learning about the person was what really led me on that journey. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, and you decided to structure the book as um, an oral history and each person who is quoted is credited under their name. And there are great explanations in the back of who people are. I was just reviewing those um, right when you, before you popped onto the Zoom. And um, it's, you know, these are 
some of the people would be well known to people who really follow screws music other people are family members or members of the community who maybe names don't ring out in the streets um how did you decide on the oral um history structure and did you always know you wanted to approach it that way i did always know that i wanted to approach it that way but i wasn't exactly sure how i was going to do it because i've never seen a book structured like this before and and uh, you know i've looked through I've, you know, I own many, many biographies. I've looked through many, many more and just different. It doesn't have to, obviously this is not restricted to a biography. There's plenty of other books that use oral history as their right. sort of storytelling. And my first two books are strict oral histories. Um, but I also felt like the format has its limitations because there's a lot that sort of goes unexplained, which, you know, can add to the mythology or it can be really pretentious, you know? So I wanted, I wanted to avoid that. I didn't necessarily want to destroy all the mythology around DJ screw, but I also didn't, you know, want it to be so pretentious that you kind of really had to know what was going on to get a sense of the story. So I always knew I wanted to structure it as an oral history, but I wasn't exactly sure how I was going to do it. Yeah. Um, I've read a couple of those, uh, James Andrew Miller, uh, oral history books. I think there's one on ESPN and one on SNL. And the one thing I just wanted to interject, well, because sorry to stop your flow, is they mm-hmm. tend to focus on institutions, not on people. So doing an right. oral history around a, a person kind of gives you this like uh, Rashomon style view in where you get di- very di- varied opinions about what happened yeah. at the time. And then it's the reader's uh, time to make a decision about what happened, essentially, right? It's different than doing yeah. it about a, a company. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I always knew I wanted to do it. I wanted to do some sort of, you know, hybrid, hybrid take on it. And, um, and, you know, I began talking to the University of Texas Press in 2015. That's when we first got in touch. And, you know, they were, they were, they were interested. They're like, yes, we want that, but you have to do a, you have to do a book proposal. You have to do, you have, you have to jump through all the hoops. Uh, and I knew that that was going to take me years because I was still really building the library and just just starting to shape the uh, the way that the manuscript. Um, so I told them, you know, somewhere along the way, like, hey, this is going to be sort of a hybridized version of it. And, you know, they were kind of like, oh, all right, I don't, I don't know. You know, <laughs> I've, you know, I've never seen anything like that, you know, but, you know, I, I'm I'm a graphic designer by trade and mm. I've typeset books before and I've typeset, you know, countless you know projects over the years you know going back 25 30 years and so i thought about it a long time about like how can i solve this to where we don't have to like indent every time that somebody talks or we don't have to Mm. you know we don't have to italicize my parts but we can really make it to where the the voices are highlighted throughout the book and 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 let people still tell their stories you know at length and not just to have, you know, a paragraph where I'm writing something and then I just slice a, one line from somebody in there to kind of reinforce what I'm talking about. It's like, no, I, I really want I really want people to be able to tell their stories at length and kind of use their own natural storytelling flow and and to allow their personality to come out in the text, you know, and and I felt like in, and as I as I was going, it felt just more and more important to me to foreground those voices. Mm. I mean, not the least of which reasons being I'm a white writer, you know, this is going to go through no doubt. And I, and I, I address this in the preface, like this is going through the filter of a white punk rocker from Galveston Island. 
I can, you can address it all you want in the preface, but you have to deal with it in the book. You have mm. to, you, you have to, you have to make it happen in the book. And the best way I knew to make that happen was to dial myself back to where I'm really just guiding you through this. Of course. Yeah. I'm the one doing the research. I'm the one doing the interviews. Um, I'm the one putting together the chronology of his life and everything like that. But in the end, I want the, 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 the real spice of the book, the real flavor of the book, the real heart of the book to be the voices of the people who knew him and who lived around him and, and, and who he loved. That's awesome. That was such a great answer. You answered the question I was about to ask, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is great because I can see you've been on a book tour. Um, so with, with that being said, do you feel like because you took this approach with the kind of hybrid oral history, um, do you think it provides you with, for lack of a better term, cover in the sense that I think a lot of the consternation about some of the biographies that are coming out is always like, well, who is this guy mm -hmm. um, to be to be writing this? And you've kind of centered yourself as an outsider, right? You're like, I'm coming into this space. Yeah. Do you think the format that you use kind of gives you some some cover and some distance from being kind of assailed as as such as an interloper or somebody's trying to tell the story that's not theirs? Well, you know, I'm still going to be assailed no matter what. <laughs> and that's okay. It's understandable. You know, 100, I 100% understand that. But I think, you know, I think that the answer is in the text. You know, I mean, you know, look at the interviews I did and, and look, look at the, the trust that I, I very obviously had to build over years of working, you know, and, um, and, you know, you don't just get these interviews by just calling somebody and saying, oh, I want to do an interview for a book. You know, what time can you yeah. talk? Yeah. You have, it, it takes years to build trust. It takes years to build a rapport. It takes years to get to the point um, with certain people, with other people they'll, they'll talk to you right away. I've, I've been waiting to tell this story. Thank you for calling me. Yeah. And other times, you know, there's some hesitation um, and it might be the hesitation of, I don't trust the media mm -hmm. um, or um, I don't know, you know, a book is, kind of a far off idea to me and really, what are you what are you trying to do or or you know who are you okay well let me tell you who i am give me a few minutes let me kind yeah. of explain what i'm doing and you guys know this you know like you know when you're interviewing somebody you're telling them everything they need to know about you based on the way that you process the world based on the questions that you're asking them you know like the way that you're phrasing things the way that you ask about people the way that you talk about other people you know what you're telling as an interviewer, you, you tell the interviewee everything they need to know about you based on the way that you interact with them. And th that either makes them comfortable or it makes them uncomfortable. If it makes them uncomfortable, you're not getting another interview or you're not getting them to open up and you're not getting those answers. And, you know, the only thing that you can ever do is to, to number one, do your research. Um, and number two, you know, be passionate about what you're doing so that when you get knocked down in the sense that you don't, get the interview that you want you know that um that you get right back up because you know you've fallen in love with what you're doing and you and you want to bring it to the to the finish line have, have i don't know you, if that 100 answers the question but no I, I i definitely thank you that I, that definitely helps kind of art, articulate that um do you feel like you or have you received any any backlash i know the, the book is just getting out there but have you received any backlash thus far about it before it came out before oh, anybody saw okay. it okay yeah yeah 
Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think the criticism was just on its face. Okay. Here's, this is a white guy writing this book. Mm -hmm. What, what's up with that? But it, yeah. you know, and I've seen it and I didn't respond to it because I understand it. And, and yeah. um, you know, um, I had, I had to feel like I had to do the, I felt like I had to do the work. I had to work much harder. I feel like to make that work. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and yeah. And, and, you know, to respond to your question earlier, I think that foregrounding those voices, um, at least for me, I felt like that's the best, you know, that's my best approach is to bring those voices to the front and, and to, to transcribe it and to present it in a, in a manner that where they see themselves when they read themselves, you know, and like when you, when you read yourself, does this sound like you, you know, does this sound, did I get, you know, did I get the vernacular right? Did I get your pauses right? Did I get your emphasis, your exact, you know, when, when you're, when you're emphasizing something, did, you know, did, does it, does this sound like you? Is this your timing? Is this, you know, that, that sort of thing. It's super, super important. And um, it can't be rushed. You know, you really have to take your time with that and you really have to get to know somebody and um, get that feeling for them to make sure that you're seeing them on the page. And more importantly, that they see themselves on the page. You know, I've said a lot of times in interviews, like this book is for the people around Screw. This is for the people who are interviewed in the book. This book is for them. If it doesn't work for them, it doesn't work. And if it works for them, everybody else will figure it out. Like, you know, it, it will make, if I make it to where it works and it, and it's true for the people who were close to the situation, even if they can look at it and go, okay, there's a lot of stuff that's not in here. Of course it's one book and you can't get anybody's life into one book. You know, you're never going to fit all of that in there. So, you know, of course there's stuff missing, you know, but hopefully I got everything right that I did include. And, and one way to do that is to, is to have those stories told by the, the, the people who knew him, who were there. Right on. Thank you for that. You know, um, I'm glad you touched on the relationship building aspect of doing interviews. And um, certainly this, uh, the book has extensive interviews and, you know, not, I mean, interviews from childhood friends and tastemakers who championed his work and all that. But I was wondering, were there, were there an interview or two that changed your perception or outlook about Screw uh, the person? Um, not changed it as far as, um, you know, a wild left turn or anything like that. Sure. Um, uh, reinforcing it. Yeah. All the time. Um, hmm. and, uh, especially, you know, uh, especially, uh, getting to talk to like his long-term girlfriend, Nikki, you know, I got a couple of interviews with her. She doesn't do, she doesn't do interviews. I mean, that's, that's someone who was, it was not easy to get an interview with her. I got an interview with her sort of by chance on the phone in, in 2015. And then I had somebody arrange a meeting where we met for dinner and, you know, it, and, and, you know, and then, and eventually really right of kind of the 11th hour before I was turning in a, a final manuscript, anybody who's worked on a manuscript knows there's a final and then there's final two and final three and whatever, you know, but, but there was a, it was a point where I was about to turn something in and, and you know, in a texture and she's like, okay, call me in 30 minutes. And then I got to talk to her for like two hours. So, you know, those were always amazing conversations, conversations with his sister, conversation conversations with his brother and with his nieces and nephew and you know because you, you especially if you're working on a biography of somebody you get a picture in your head of of the parts of their life and kind of how their lives fit together but you you're, you know very much aware of the missing parts 
<clears throat> and to 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 have any any interview that like gives you a little bit of insight into that is just you know i mean it it feels like such an achievement inside of the whole long process you know my wife always you know would see me come out of the studio and i'm you know, you know yes yes like you know like the astros just won the world series or something she's like what happened and i was like i just talked to stick one you know and you know get really excited about stuff because like i said you're passionate about it you know and then you're uh, in, preaching to the choir here like yeah, <laughs> we, yeah. We, we all just did that a couple weeks ago we're totally. like running around our apartments like yes that went and, so well and, I can't and believe it. our partners have no idea what the hell we're talking yeah. about <laughs> I, I rolls i rolls yeah 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 exactly so you know it it, it gives you you know each time you get one of those the, the story that's inside of you kind of fills up in its own way and uh, and it, it just moves the football so much further down the field each time. Uh, very well said. Thank you. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you from the second that I cracked this open and saw the way you structured it is, did you want to, like, it, I'm going to give you an opportunity to, and then I kind of want to hear, did you ever think about adding this into, like, is there, a, do you have a, a thought process or like, did you want to like write an essay or a pontification about what screws music means? Like it's so much, it's such a biography. Like what does it mean to double music? What does it mean to slow music? Like, do you have thoughts on that that you want to express or do you feel like other people kind of said it in the book? I, do you get what I'm asking? Yeah, 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 I do. Okay. Um, I, I, I do feel like other people expressed it. Um, I hope so. I, I hope that, you know, when somebody finishes the book that they get that sense from everyone else but that's also why i included you know there's no forward in this book there's just a preface but there is a um oh god what's it called Ep epigram epigram you guys read enough books help me out epigram right the, <laughs> yeah the, that the, sounds you know, right the, D, the, D, yeah. the dj yeah, the dj screw quote in the very beginning um from a bilal uh Allah interview from 1995 rap pages um where he he sort of explains it you know and he's saying you know i'm, I'm making my music for everybody so everybody can feel it you know, I might run something back because what they're saying is important. And, you know, the whole process of him slowing something down, you know, in a lot of ways is um, inspired by, you know, him wanting to hear what, what people were saying. Mm. So, you know, but I mean, I could write 10 essays on, on what screws music, what screws music means to me. Yeah. Um, but that's, again, that kind of goes back to like, whoa, you know, rein yourself in, dude, you know, <laughs> like, you know, di dial it back a little bit. This, this book, you know, I mean, if you finish the book, you, you know that in the, in the 10th chapter, I switched the first person, you know, so that's bad enough, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and, and, and I kind of do kind of, kind of go off on this sort, sort of, you know, let me, let me, kind of get really descriptive with you here for a second before i give you the yeah. like, personal personal story of when when i saw screw you know um but i could have done a lot of that but i i i really hope that through the process of what the music meant to the people around it um the most who are around it the most i, I hope that the, that the readers get that sense from from them mm -hmm. yeah as someone who's literally unable to write something that's not essentially about myself, I commend you for like sticking <laughs> to the plan and at least yeah. waiting until you got pretty far into it before switching, yeah. uh, switching Absolutely. tenses. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big accomplishment. The people in our world are very excited about it. I think yeah. um, he was a mystery to many and that this helps enlighten people about 
um, who he was for real, like who he really was, not the mythology yeah. of it, but the person. And, and I think it's really important. So thank you for, uh, for talking to us and thanks for putting this together. And I cannot imagine how much work that was to chase all those people down and transcribe every pause correctly. Like uh, you have uh, our utmost respect. Yeah, thank you so sure. much. Absolutely. Uh, before we let you go, I, I, I have to ask this question. Um, it's mm -hmm. an, and it's a question that I posed to, to Fat Tony, another Houstonian, um, a big screw fan. Um, I'm not saying I'm a skeptic. I just, I never, I don't think I got it yet in terms of uh -huh. the sound of Chopped and Screwed. Can you give me, what's the track I need to go listen to? And if I don't get that, then I can just, it ain't, it's not going to happen for me. What is the track that you would, um, that would encapsulate? Okay. That? All right. All right. Okay. I got you. Um, listen to DJ Screw's mix of street militaries shit get wild in the city okay okay yeah the street military was a local group uh, from houston they were um they're from several different neighborhoods they're not you know a lot of most groups in houston are sort of centered around one neighborhood ghetto boys are an exception because ghetto boys are kind of from all over town and street military was the same way and really super hard hitting um uh, group great rappers great producer um klondike cat if you're familiar with that name from the South Park Coalition, would sing with them. Uh, and they're just a fantastic group. And his mix of that song just blows my mind because um, of all these new rhythms that he finds within the texture of the song and brings out a song that I already thought hit plenty hard on its own and, you know, has, I think, one of my favorite lines ever. Um, uttered in 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 any Houston rap song, and and he winds that line back and you know gives it gives it another another uh, gives it another run, but uh, that's a really good one. It's okay. it's really distorted and it's really blasted out and everything like that. But it's also you know one of the things that it, Screw was so good at was just you know creating like absolute chaos sometimes, mm. and sometimes that would be with him chopping something up and like creating these new rhythms and these new textures in the song. And other times it would be about him passing that mic around the room and the people who took that mic and who were freestyling sometimes just kind of more emceeing and hosting and talking over stuff. And you could hear other voices in the background and people laughing. And like, <laughs> it's just such a, a beautiful um, sense of, of community for one of screw bringing people in and also, but also screw going like express yourselves, like whatever mm -hmm. you're going to do, go ahead and do it. You're safe. You're safe with me. Do it in this room, express yourself and then go out into the world and express yourself and ride on my back, ride on my wings and, and, and go out into the world and, and, and take what you're doing and do something with it. You know, that's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, Lance, appreciate you coming on the program. Everybody go out and cop DJ screw a life and slow revolution, man. Thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks so much for having me. y'all. Appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah, super cool. Want to thank Lance for um, stopping by. Is this our second person that's talked to us from a parking lot? I remember Rob Sonic. <laughs> Rob Sonic definitely did. Rob Sonic, of course, called in from a Sonic, not a <laughs> <laughs> not Whataburger. Uh, yeah, appreciate uh, Lance making the time. In I feel like there's been a couple car ones. Uh, you know yeah. who called from a car? I don't remember who was on the interview. Uh, Shay Noir. Oh, is that right? Uh, I yeah. remember. And it was uh, like I think... summer in Buffalo and it was hot. Like, 
Okay. I think okay. Tajay early on called from a car. Oh, oh Tajay did. Tajay was yeah. coming back from Joshua Tree. Yeah. yeah. He was yeah. literally in a car talking to us. So uh, those really cool for him to uh, make the time for us like that. Super knowledgeable about the life and legacy of Screw and um, so many interesting things to say about it. And we're just going to keep this whole writer vibe going. Uh, we've got another interview coming up. Um, but Nate, I wanted to make a little space here for you to kind of talk about some of the winds that are swirling around their next guests and uh, uh, related to their latest work. Yeah. Um, so we have Paul Cantor on today. Um, he is, you know, a longtime music journalist, someone who's respected in the field. Um, as you're about to hear, he has a um, background in music production and he's a, he's a big music head. And he wrote a book called Most Dope, The Extraordinary Life of Mac Miller. And um, when it was kind of announced, like the Mac Miller Stan community, if you will, kind of turned on him and it exposed this kind of dark underside of um, online music fandom that people know is lurking in the distance. But essentially what it brings up is the um, the societal question of who is allowed to write about whom mm-hmm. and like do we do we really think as a society that only authorized books should be published to me that's an absurd notion like as you know a kind of very low level journalist i just cannot get behind that um train of thought at all anyone can write about anything they want at any time it's like that's the i'm not you're not going to get all first amendment here but like you don't need someone's family's permission to write about them. People are going nuts. Like people mm-hmm. who I don't think actually think this are seem to be joining kind of online dog piles about this. And frankly, I find it disturbing. And as we're going to hear, uh, you're, mm-hmm. you're fucking with people's lives here. Like actually their actual lives. Dave, I, I know, um, I know you as a writer um, have thought about doing some biographical stuff yeah. Do, does does this whole conversation around who has permission to tell a particular story and kind of the the weird toxic fan culture does mm-hmm. it, do you think about that as a writer and thinking about you know wanting to maybe write about somebody but potentially I, being put I, off? Certainly, certainly. I mean, to Nate's point, I mean, it's it's. I think it's an an absurd absurd notion. Um, when I was toying with the idea of writing a book on Dilla. Thankfully, I didn't because Charnas's is like top notch forever. <laughs> but um, I was yeah, yours I was, was going to be great, Dave. I just want to put that out. <laughs> well, mine was going to be more of an oral history. But um, mm-hmm. I was I was starting to seek out the um, seek out permission from the Dillias, Dilla estate. So on one hand, you know, you do want the backing of the family. You, you do want their blessings. But on the other hand, um, you can write whatever the fuck you want to write, you know. And I think a lot of the toxic fandom just comes from people thinking and wanting it to be just so precious, you know, and it's like, yeah. they don't even know the writer, like a Kathy and Dolly is going to yeah. treat a story about um, um, Aaliyah with the utmost uh, respect, uh, you know, with the, with all the complexity that it needs, you know, and so for someone, for people to dogpile on Paul Cantor, it's like, well, you're not familiar with him, you're just immediately, this is a knee-jerk reaction to, to, to media, right, I think exactly, and, and to Lance media. talked about that, is like this, this uh, reflexive distrust of media in general, and, and there's reasons, right, but I think when people hear unauthorized biography, um, they conflate it with being like a hit piece, or right, right. Um, something that's going to be like salacious, and there are those type of things, mm-hmm, but that's mm-hmm. not every book, right? And but it, those it's, serve it, a it's purpose. Not. I don't right, want to like, right. we, like okay. we, 
Remember when we did our two short episode and everyone was talking about Nancy Reagan's like insane yeah. head game that came from an unauthorized biography that Kitty Kelly wrote. And she was famous yeah. for doing those kind of like gossipy, salacious yeah. pieces. Yeah. Did it right. happen? Did it not? I don't know. It made right. it. But, but I'm better for the story. Yes. But I am like, yeah. <laughs> you're allowed to like, I don't know. I, I don't think we want to live in this world where every biography is sanitized. Okay, right. well, I, I, I agree with that. I just I do want to add that um, there is an element of we need to tell our own stories. So uh, which sure. is ultimately an, el- an element of race. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a white author talking about black culture. You know, if it's a, a some of the articles that I've written, it's been like, I want to tell the story. I want to tell our story. So with that sort of that sort of mind state, I get. But it but it comes as a knee jerk reaction to you don't know who this writer is and that's probably the perfect writer to tell that story. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I think folks are kind of like, um, it's the dilemma caused by the, the show Winning Time, which <laughs> says, can how much liberties can somebody take with, with a real that person actually, who's alive's life? Yeah, right, yeah right. who's still alive. And it kind of, it, it, it leans into this idea of like, yeah, what is the what are the boundaries for a writer? I think Lance, uh, I really respect him bringing up the fact that he was a white writer yeah, coming into yeah. the space and how it informed his approach, which I think is right. very self-aware um, and very good. Unlike the woman, the white woman who wrote um, Trap Feminism, <laughs> that got, it got pulled off the shelves. Yeah, because that did not end well for her. No, it really didn't. But but it does speak to this thing of like, who is allowed to tell the story? Right. The backlash, though, that I've seen around... Um, the, the Mac Miller book, the Aaliyah book, and then also this, uh, it was just announced that uh, Skids Fernando, who's been on our program, mm-hmm. is going to be doing a Dune biography. I think the reflexive backlash there is, is aren't these notions of race as much as just like, who are you to write um, this book about somebody who, Dave, I think you used the, the perfect term, that you hold precious. And I think we've, we've turned as fans because, I don't know, I'm not going to postulate why, but I, as fans, I think we have turned into um it's kind of like sports where there's like Steph Curry guys and there's LeBron guys and if you're a Steph Curry guy nobody can tell you anything negative or realistic about them and it's just kind of it's a shitty place to be but it's It's the lowest form of discourse it's dishonest and it's stupid and like we have to get better as a society and like it's it's not really about society per se it's like kind of about twitter isn't it? Yeah. Like that well, is Twitter is where it congeals. Yeah, yeah, for it's sure. toxic fandom for sure. Yeah, yeah, that then that, that's kind of uh, the the holding space for all of it, and unfortunately, it was and probably I don't always just write there. about LP and Eminem. So we're gonna have to figure this out. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you know, uh, and you know, typically books that come out that are that are official and you know. Um, um, agreed upon by the state, those suck. No, no, I can tell you firsthand. I read Gil Scott Heron's um, authorized biography, which has a jacket note from Eminem. Ouch. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's wow. not good. It it is not good. I can't recommend wow. knowing what I need. About... Some stories about some four a.m. drug uh, deals in a uh, Gil Scott Heron yeah, book. Please, uh, please. Eminem's on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's what amazing. is he a buffoon? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Too soon. Oh, so good. So uh, good. Um, yeah. So any, anyway, we don't usually like take on the big topics of the day or whatever, but we really did want to talk to Paul about his book and um, mm-hmm. the booking God Dave got 
um, hey. Lance to kind of show up in our Zoom from his car, which was an amazing <laughs> synchronicity. And um, his book is really well done and a very interesting way to avoid subjects of this, not to avoid them, but to take them head on right. and yeah. to uh, deal yeah. with them in the text of the book. And um, yeah, and, and if anyone can send me a link to like Paul Cantor's production discography, I couldn't oh. figure out what name he went under or where oh. all this music is, but I'm very curious about uh, okay. these tracks that he did. But um, anyway. Nate is deputizing the dad bot nation to, uh, <laughs> to, do this, to do this research. Yeah, so let's get into it. This is our conversation with writer... Paul Cantor, Dead by Rap. Dad bod, rap pod, every week we talk to people who are moving and shaping hip-hop culture. This week is no different. Joining us in Zoom, we have writer Paul Cantor. How's it going, man? Fucking amazing now that I'm talking to you guys. <laughs> that is the effect that we typically have on people. No, not really. <laughs> uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we definitely want to talk about um, your book, uh, most dope about the life of, of Mac Miller. But before we do that, I was reading your bio and it says that you started as a musician. So you talk to us a little bit about that and like, how did you make uh, this, this transition from a uh, musician to music entertainment journalist? Well, shit. How much time do I have? <laughs> um, Let it roll. <laughs> All right. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I uh, I did start my career as a music producer. Um, you know, I, as a lot of people did, I think. Um, you know, I honestly, not a lot of people know this, but I started out really trying to rap um, and, and did that in my teens. And I was like kind of, um, you know, known in my high school for that, you know, battling and stuff like that. Um, what was your rap name? Oh, I can't even. I can't even get into it because <laughs> motherfuckers are going to try to get me canceled out here. Um, <laughs> so I'm just going to keep that on the low. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's like that's that's the risk you take when you start talking about your actual past. People are just going to start digging up your yearbook and all types of things. Yeah, this is really Apple research, but I'll, I'll let you finish your your yeah, story. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I never really, um, you know, I never really pursued rapping too seriously. Um, I, I didn't really have a lot of, you know, aspirations to be like a person. I just don't like being looked at, like in general. Mm. Um, I always like being behind the scenes. Um, so I was, for, I'm from Staten Island and I was a big Wu-Tang fan and I always just wanted to be like the RZA of something, um, mm. you know, and be kind of talked about the way like people talked about the RZA. You know, um, so I, uh, I mean, actually, if a funny st rap story, probably the last time I like really, really, really rap 
was um, I rapped for Capadonna in the in in the Staten Island Mall. I like ran up on him. I was like still in <laughs> high school, and I was like, "Yo, let me spit some bars for you." And um, I had to be like 16 or something like that. Um, and yeah, I mean, he was very complimentary, um, you know. And yeah, then I I got into producing uh, when I was 18. You know, started buying like real equipment. Uh, you know, always made beats on like a little four track and DJ equipment, um, which I had gotten when I was about 12 or 13. Um, and even before that, um, I like really digging into crates in my memory now. Like I, I, you know, would bring like beats and things to like show and tell when I was in like third and fourth grade. So my uh, history, like as a creator of music goes back to like, you know, the, as early as I could possibly do it. Um, and then when I was in college, yeah, around 18, 19, um, I got more serious about producing um, had a small recording studio in Staten Island that was um, pretty popping at the time and uh, worked with, you know, a lot of different people um, locally and um, pretty much anybody who was, you know, anybody uh, at that time. That was like when mixtapes were big in New York. Um, so, you know, we would have a lot of people that were, you know, big on mixtapes recording in our studio um i actually was just remembering like two days ago like they used to, i i used to i produced a, like a uh, for a rapper he used to do a promo for hot 97 that used to play like all the time you know and i was just like that's such an odd thing to you know have been involved with <laughs> you know like um yeah like i never talk about it but um yeah like that used to play for like a year or two years every day you know um and like nobody even knows i did it um so yeah, I was pretty serious into the producing um, and kind of still am, but I, I was much more on that path until my late 20s or so. Uh, and then in my early 30s, um, I got a little bit more inspired to get serious about writing. Um, when I actually wrote uh, something around the time that um, there was, I think, a 10 year anniversary from my mother passing away, mother passed away and um 2003 so uh i think it was in 2013 i just wrote something you know if my family was gathering uh for her um you know just out of the cemetery and i just wrote like a little personal remembrance type thing and um everybody was really moved by that um that was kind of like the first time i'd really written something like fairly personal i was always kind of embarrassed about writing um, I don't know why, I guess, you know, it, I, nobody was around me that, you know, looked at writing in like a really, um, important way. Um, and I, I don't know that I'd ever really written anything anybody was like really moved by. Um, and that kind of like changed things for me. I started feeling like, you know, you have like kind of a talent for this. Maybe you should kind of try to take it a little more seriously than you're currently taking it. So that's, that's, uh, that's how I got, you know, um, a little more serious about writing. Yeah. Okay, great, great. Thank you for explaining that. So, you know, Paul, you ended up writing for the New York Times, Rolling Stone. And uh, before we dive into the uh, Mac Miller book, um, I was going through your work and I, I came upon um, a super old uh, Kendrick interview that you did. And I just want to, um, you know, I just want to get your opinion on on Kendrick and sort of the backstory on how that 
happened, how that unfolded, and sort of where you see Kendrick going, uh, given that you had a had an early eye on him. Yeah, um, kind of crazy how his career panned out. I used to like text with him and everything, um, <laughs> which is you know so odd, right? Um, to just even remember that you would like text with like Kendrick Lamar, um, <laughs> like just such a bizarre person. Um, I don't know, you know, I, that's one where I could actually acknowledge that I don't, I don't think I was really on the money with that. Mm. Um, I didn't really see it happening for Kendrick. Um, I was a person who felt that what he was doing was a little too, you know, cerebral and a little too eccentric um, to be popular. Um, at that time, um, rap was like a lot of the more, I don't want to say, for lack of a better term, almost like blog-centric rap. It really wasn't crossing over into anything, right? It wasn't like reaching a large audience, right? Uh, it was kind of like, you know, I would almost put him in like a category with like say Slaughterhouse or something like that. You know, um, I mean, he was like touring with like Tech Nine, I think when I did that piece, mm. you know? And yeah, I just thought like that was gonna be his career. You know, he was gonna be a guy who like rapped really fast and stuff. And people were like, oh, this guy's like super lyrical. And it would be like a lot of, you know, great cultural criticism about him. But I didn't know that he would, you know, really ascend to the heights that he has. Um, but also that was because so much of the uh, uh, the culture around Kendrick and around that type of music um, became much more popular and much more centered, uh, which was a positive thing, right? Um, like, but that started happening around 2012, 2013, 2014, um, partially because of the, issues that you know were becoming central to uh the conversation right um you had um you know michael brown uh being you know killed um you know you had the situation um in staten island with eric garner so a lot of what kendrick was doing you know was was connecting with the moment that he was in um i i want to say it's like the song High Power, I think it might be in that video, right? There's like a riot. <laughs> it's like so much, ahead, it was so ahead of its time, you know what I'm saying? Um, and High Power is on, um, that's on Section 80, if I'm not sure, if, mm -hmm. I'm, if I'm correct. You know, so, yeah, I don't know. I just didn't know how that would like really, you know, if that would, I'm not sure. You know, you never, you never know. I didn't think Eminem was going to be a star, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. when I was a kid. So, you know, sometimes you guess them right, sometimes you guess them wrong. I liked Kendrick. I thought it was dope, you know what I mean? But, but like, you know, as a writer, right, um, at least 50% of it is your personal opinion, and then 50% of it is like you, you're kind of speaking for or trying to kind of uh, speak for the audience a little bit, right? You have to kind of reflect who you're writing something for. Um, so I, I didn't know with that one. Um, but I mean, I'm glad it did work out for him, <laughs> you know, and, uh, I mean, is he retired now is the question, right? I mean, what's going on five years? Mm. It's, it's nuts. Yeah. Right. Um, appreciate that perspective a lot, actually. Um, I wanted to ask you, 
Has there been a moment in your journalistic career where you had crazy access to something where you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm backstage at this show or I'm at this after party with this table of people that I never thought I'd be able to be around. Like, does something stick out to you in your long career where you're like, holy shit, I got to do that. That was amazing. Yeah, um, t- totally. By the way, that's an amazing question. Um, uh, yeah, really early on in my career, not necessarily, I was already writing. I'd almost, I'd only written, I think one or two pieces. It was the summer my career started. So I was 22. I just graduated uh, college. Um, I think I had one, maybe one piece in double XL. I reviewed a master ace album, um, a long hot summer, which was a great album. Um, and I was in a record shop called sound library in, uh, in the Lower East side. Um, and I think, you know, if people who listen to this are like big record people, you know what I mean? They would kind of know that place. And, um, I don't think it's there anymore, but you know, it was pretty, pretty legendary at the time. And I'm sitting there. Uh, um, I actually got put onto that place by the producer ski, uh, ski beats, you know, did like a bunch of joints on reasonable doubt. Ski used to come to my house. Um, and I, and like, uh, I was managed at that time as a producer by a, by a uh, Ski's old manager and business partner. So uh, Ski took me to Sound Library and put me on it. You know, he, he would get all the cool records, right? Because they would hold all the cool stuff for him, <laughs> right? And then I came back like a dweeb, like a, a week later, like, oh, Ski brought me here. And they were like, oh, go fuck yourself. Go, you know, pay for the $20 basic ass records. But I'm sitting there. And who comes in? Andre 3000, right? Um, and he sits down next to me because, um, you know, they used to have listening stations there. I had about 10 records with me. Andre sits down with no joke, like 400 records, right? And every record in that in Sound Library was like, you know, $25, right? And I was just like, you know, poor 22-year-old. And me and Andre are sitting there for like an hour listening to records, you know, just kind of looking at each other. And he's like, what do you got? I'm like, I'm showing him the covers and shit like that. Um, And so mind you, he winds up buying all these records, right? Um, He he buys all these records, he walks out, right? He's wearing, um, I I forget what he's exactly what he was wearing, like kind of like a denim outfit, right? Um, I want to say there was a BET Awards or, or something that that weekend or that night. <laughs> then he pops up on the BET Awards, literally wearing the same thing, right? Like he went straight from that, you know, from the sound library to the BET Awards in LA, right? Um, and then I'm, I'm this story is getting somewhere, right? I used to have Jay Z's email address. Um, so I remember vaguely like me and Jay-Z were like exchanging, or I believe it was Jay-Z, right? He was like, you know, Sean Carter at, you know, whatever the, the, um, sidekick email was at that time. Um, and I remember like us exchanging emails and this was all happening like around the same time. So I had like one day 
I walk in this thing with ski. I remember actually the time to ski. I went there with him. I was actually texting. I mean, emailing Jay Z for ski, who was trying to get in touch with him. That's great. Um, so that was that was um, you know my young moment where I was like, what is happening right now? Um, and then I only remember this so well because a friend of mine uh, who's about my age recently called me and was like, remember you used to email with Jay Z? I was like, yeah, I mean, I kind of do. Yeah, that's that's pretty pretty crazy, but um. Yeah, I've had a lot of moments like that, but every moment, man, I mean, I'm just like, yeah, uh, Jake Cole came to my house, you know, um, I came back from playing basketball, <laughs> came back from playing basketball, was hooping, like, it was the afternoon, I was living in, the, in Manhattan, this was like in, like, 2016, we were, we were like, oh, let's get together, you know, um, or, you know, on text or whatever, he's like, all right, I'll come to your house come to your apartment. I, 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 I walk back from playing ball. I go in the shower. Right. Um, and I, I, I like the doorman calls upstairs. I come out the shower uh, and he's like, Oh, we have uh, Jermaine is downstairs. <laughs> I'm like, all right. I'm like, all right, send him up. You know, um, I answer the door in a bathroom. Right. I'm like, hold on one second. Right. I, I, he comes in, I go get dressed. And I'm like, this dude literally rode his bike to my apartment, you know, like, and just was like, you know, hey, I'm here to see Paul, like, and then, yeah, it's just, it's just yeah, so that's, you know, life. <laughs> Man, a, lot of, a lot of stuff like that, yeah. What what a life it is, uh, kind of related to that. I'm wondering, what's your approach when you're going to sit down with a J. Cole or um, an artist you know that is... Um, a big time artist, but you want to sit down and get them comfortable and, and somehow get a story out of them. Do you have a, a particular approach to that? Or do you just kind of like kick it all day? What walk us through how that happens when you're talking to, to someone of, of that ilk? Um, it, I mean, it always varies, you know, um, I know it's like a little bit of a cliche at this point. Um, I like, I'm very on some like, you know, the Bruce Lee thing, like be water, you know, um, again, I acknowledge that that is a cliche, um, but that's kind of, you know, how you have to be, right? You just have to kind of conform to whatever the situation is. Um, generally, I'm a fairly relaxed person and don't I, I, like, I, I feel like journalists tend to be fairly type A. I'm like not really type A. I can't remember anything, you know, like um, I'm kind of, you know, sometimes I'll be doing this shit and have to remind myself I'm like actually supposed to be doing something. You know? <laughs> uh, like I can never remember that, like, you know, too many details unless I'm like, I know like, oh, I got to be working. Like then I'll like really be on, you know, but for the most part, you know, um, it isn't until like afterward um, that I'll kind of like start putting the pieces together um but as i've gotten older that process has changed a lot um you know one thing i tend to do now is like which i know they don't really advise that much when you go to like journalism school and stuff but i like write a lot from memory now as opposed to um you know always recording everything um like i'll just kind of remember like what a person said um usually people say their most interesting things when when they're not you know, supposed to be talking, yeah. right? Like you kind of, um, I think I did something on Rick Ross a couple of years ago. Um, 
And it was like an interesting thing. I was like just doing some fly on the wall shit with him. And he said something about like, he asked a question, like he didn't know what like a mojito was or something. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I just like, out of all the shit that he said that day, <laughs> that was like the most interesting thing to me. Right? But he didn't really know I was like listening to that. And he was like, what's a mojito? And I was just like... <laughs> Like, are you even that's... from Miami? It was just, you know, odd because he's like, you know, he talks about all these, like, he's just such a dropper of objects. And yes. And I was just mm-hmm. like, I think it was Mojito. I don't remember off the top of my head. You know, I'm pretty sure it was, though. And he was just like, what is what is a Mojito? And, you know, it's just be like random shit like that. That where a person like, you know, you know, you like go to a restaurant you know, um, and like people just don't know what like something super basic is. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like how I used to be, you know, like if I walked in, like I didn't know anything about like sushi or something and I would walk in and be like, not know anything. It'd be like, what is a roll? You know what I mean? Like, right. how come they sometimes give it to you in like a little cone? Like, what, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I wouldn't know anything how this stuff works. You know, um, and that was kind of it reminded me of that. But he's like 50. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, just, yeah. And, and, so- and, and mad rich. But uh, ha- have you ever had an interview go left? You don't have to say rapper's name, but have you oh, ever? Yeah, had- yeah to- totally. Um, I mean, I had. Um, well, I had an issue like many years ago with Foxy Brown um, mm-hmm. where, mm-hmm. you know, her and I got into like a little thing in in the middle of the interview. She basically like had double scheduled herself, mm-hmm. um, and I remember her. Well, for one thing, she was. I mean, I don't want to like really. Yeah, whatever. Fuck it. I mean, you know, <laughs> she definitely like revealed something about herself. You know, and I know this about artists. You know, because I from running a recording studio, right? I used to have a lot of artists they would do interviews. Um, they would tell people to come interview them at the studio, right? But when we were in the studio, they would be a lot different than they would be when they, you know, kind of just stepped out into like a little lounge area, so to speak. Um, the studio was in a house, so sometimes they would go upstairs. But like the conversation between the engineer and me and them would be like way different, you know, um, it, you know, than they would talk to the journalists. And they would kind of, you know, um, charm them, right? So this thing with Foxy, I remember this girl uh, came, uh, she's actually a journalist, Laura Checkaway. Um, she makes documentaries and stuff now. Uh, she wrote, co-wrote Prodigy's book. Um, so that's her, you know, one, one really cool thing she did. But I remember um, the doorbell rang at Foxy's, wherever she was staying, Foxy had like a Maybach parked outside, right? And uh, it was like some crazy car. This was like when a Maybach was like, you know, it was it was like, I don't know, this was, yeah, it was a different time. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like Maybach's really kind of average now. Uh, not that I have one or anything, but, um, <laughs> you know. Uh, and so Laura uh, uh, rings the bell. And she opens the door and she says, oh, shit, Laura's here. I'm double booked, right? She says, hold on one second, closes the door. And she looks at her like assistant across the way. And she literally says, watch, she mouths, watch this 
B-I-T-C-H, right? Um, and then opens the door, right? Um, and then, you know, Laura comes in and like, they're kind of making small talk and Laura's like, what the hell? Why is there another journalist here? Um, and then, you know, I don't know, me and Foxy just, we wound up arguing over, over something um, like, you know, basically like she said that she was retiring um, and then like kind of wanted to backtrack and like, I don't know, she just got really pissed off. And she told me, you're never going to work again. She literally said that. She said, you're never going to work again. You know, I had been at this point, I'd been hanging out with her for like three, four hours. And um, like she wanted to do this, like, I think if I remember correctly, she wanted to do the whole interview again. And I was like, what wow. the fuck? We've been here for like four hours. Like, I got to get the fuck out of here. It's like midnight, you know? Um, and she, she wound up like kicking me out. Um, or, and I just like left and I was like, yeah, whatever. You know, um, and then her guy comes, I get outside the hotel. She was staying in like, um, I don't even, it might've been a Trump hotel back then, right? <laughs> and she, and he comes out downstairs and he says, look, whatever you do, man, like I'm begging you, please just don't run that interview, right? See, whatever you do, don't run that interview. She's got a lot of problems. She doesn't know what she's doing, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay. And then he says, Look, man, if you need anything, this is what sealed the shit for me. He says, look, man, if you need anything, I rent cars and this is my this is my rental. And I was like, OK, got it. Uh, you know, and I was like, oh, man, this is like such a show going on here. You know, wow. um, and yeah, I was a, I was pretty young then. I was like, you know, 25 or so. And I was like, yeah, this is this is the entertainment business in a nutshell. Um, another time I got into a fight, I almost got into a fight with Damon Dash. Um, and yeah, we, we almost got into it, you know, um, he got up and I wrote about that in a piece for him uh, on him for vice, you know, um, about us almost getting into a fight. Um, and yeah, I mean, a couple of times, you know, um, but I'm, I'm kind of good at, you know, like keeping things sort of civil, you know, it, it never come from me. I, I mean, I never have issues with anybody. Like I'm like a totally non-aggressive person. Like, if, you know, um, if I, uh, you know, if I never got into a fight again, I would be, you know, gracious. Great. Thank you, man. Thank you. Uh, wonder, wonderful stories. Um, we need to transition to um, the Mac Miller book, uh, Most Dope, Extraordinary Life of Mac Miller. And, uh, you know, um, I, I know a lot of research went into it. Um, you interviewed his friends and confidants. And I just want to know a little bit about the, your approach and the process and sort of also how you dealt with the, the initial backlash of it being unauthorized and how authors in general have to deal with you know, stands, you know, uh, um, receiving things negatively when, when it's unauthorized? Um, yeah, I mean, well, which, which part of that would you like me to address? <laughs> Tee off, man, Where, wherever is fine. Um, yeah, I mean, well, I, before I even started the book, right, I went to um, a bunch of people that were close to him and, you know, some who were I mean, about as close as you could possibly get. And I said, you know, if I was to do this, like, what would this look like? Is this a thing you would support? You know, is it the right idea? Is it too early? Is it too 
you know, like, like, cause I'd never done anything like that before, you know? Um, and, you know, I remember one of them very specifically being like, no, I, you know, if, if, if somebody was to do this, you would be the right guy for it, you know? Um, and, you know, like here, just kind of do your thing. If you, you know, if you want to do it, you know, um, um, you know, there's a little bit of a process you have to go through, but this is, you know, told me what the process was. And, um, and then I kind of started going through that, <laughs> um, you know, and multiple people um, were supportive at, you know, at first, um, a lot of his um, close friends and, you know, just people in his inner circle. Um, and I interviewed them kind of without any problems, you know, most of them said yes to me. Um, it might've been like one or two people, um, that, you know, had their reasons or whatever. Uh, but for the most part, like it wasn't difficult, um, mm -hmm. to get people to talk cause they kind of wanted to, you know, um, they were like, yeah, this is dope, you know? A lot of them knew who I was. Um, some didn't, you know what I'm saying? Like maybe some of the friends who weren't like quote unquote industry savvy, you know, weren't like dialed into like rap media and blah, 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 you know, but by and large, you know, like uh, it was a fairly, yeah, it was like, it was a little bit of an exercise in just, just how to do one of these things. Cause I'd never done it before. Um, and I wanted to be really careful Um not necessarily out of like any, you know, thing where I felt like I was doing something wrong, but more so because he was a person and, um, you know, uh, you know, when you do journalism, you know, just, you gotta be, you know what I mean, like it's a lot of people, you know what I mean, involved in his life and you just want to be respectful, you know, he had passed away, you know what I mean? Not, that long. I mean, it was like a year, you know, year and a half before, you know what I'm saying? So I wanted to just be like courteous of that and make sure I was not stepping on anybody's toes. It really wasn't too pushy about, I never asked anybody to, you know, I, I, everything was like, if you don't want to do it, I get it, you know, but this is what it is, you know, and if, if it's something you're down for, let me know. And most of them were like, yeah. Um, I traveled to Pittsburgh multiple times. I went to LA um, a couple times. Um, so I was kind of tracing, retracing the footsteps. Was in Brooklyn a lot. Um, and, you know, I'm from New York, so that wasn't like the craziest, you know, adventure, you know what I'm saying? Um, but I live in New Jersey now, so I, I would have to take time out to do that. Um, and also I was a new parent at that time, uh, which is the reason why the name of this podcast is so on the nose for me, you know, <laughs> um, you know, uh, cause I got a dad bod in the middle of doing this, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, it was, you know, I, I the reason why this, this pro project was so powerful for me, you know, was I became a parent when I started, this, you know, so I was thinking about how a life begins. Um, and that's sort of what you're doing when you make a biography, right? Um, mm -hmm. You're thinking about the things that, you know, make a person. So I was looking at somebody that was just made and I was just like, yeah, what would, you know, you do when, you know, you're this age, and, you know, who would your friends be? And blah, blah, blah. It started getting me thinking about, you know, uh, 
invention and reinvention and, and, and just all that. Um, so, yeah. Um, now, as far as the, the second part of that, you know, which was like dealing with like stands and all that, um, that was a really um, disappointing, you know what I'm saying? I, mm -hmm. Like, it's really no way to dance around it. It was really like depressing um, for everybody. <laughs> um, it was depressing first and foremost, you know, for the fans, right? Because when they do stuff like that, they're kind of working against themselves, you know? If I was a fan of John Lennon, I want to know everything about John Lennon, right? I don't want to not know about John Lennon and be like, you know what? You're trying to tell me something really amazing about him, but you didn't, you know, do this the right way, you know, blah, 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 you know? And then most of that information about whatever I was doing was not accurate and we didn't, you know, it wasn't like it came from me. Um, so, you know, I have, um, well, this year would be my, uh, no, no, two more years, 18 years, right? I've been doing this, right? I've been doing this 18 years. I mean, you don't get to do something 18 years by doing the wrong thing, you know? Um, like, uh, so I just felt people were making kind of snap judgments on, you know, me and my work. And that was really disappointing. Um, and that's the reason why I kind of continue to support the book in the way that I have um, doing events and talking to people like, like you guys, because, um, you know, I still feel the book has not gotten a fair shake and I, I want to get people to, you know, give it the attention it deserves. Right. Um, you know, I don't think anybody's really picked it up and fe felt like, you know, it wasn't something that it was, it wasn't, it was falsely advertised by somebody else to be something it wasn't, you know, um, you know, and so that's, yeah, that's how I feel about it. Um, but the last thing I'll say, I mean, I can talk, you know, about that shit forever if you, if you know, if you want to keep going with it. Um, but I, I do think that it was dangerous, you know what I'm saying? For, you know, my family, right. Um, like I said, I have a, a young daughter in the house, all that, you know, stuff with the, you know, stands kind of coming for me and all that shit. This is coming up on about a year ago. So she was only two, you know, and yeah, we had like police outside of our house, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, this is a pretty serious situation, you know, um, when you're amplifying negativity about somebody that people feel a really strong connection to, you, you know, you really just need one fucking psycho to, you know, come on your property and, and do something crazy. Um, and, you know, you can't really control all these psychos, right, when you're putting that out on the, you know, on the internet. Um, and I remember, you know, when I was dealing with the police, I go in the police station and the guy's like, well, you know, what's going on? And you know, I kind of tell him. He happened to be around the same age as I, as I was. He was like, you're doing a book on Mac Miller? He was like, that's amazing. <laughs> this is a cop, by the way. He's like, that's amazing. I like, I love Mac Miller. <laughs> um, and and um, he was like, oh, I've been to his shows, right? And um, we wind up talking about like all this. Actually, he no joke. I'm so glad I'm talking about this because he listens to this podcast. Right. Um, <laughs> I remember <laughs> in the police station talking about this podcast with him. 
that is crazy. Yeah, that, that um, is unbelievable. <laughs> I would say was better is a better term. Wow. That, that you know what I'm saying? Wow. Like we're literally in there, and and we're talking about podcasts, and he's and he's talking about this podcast, and I was like, that's nuts. So he probably will hear this and be like, wow. That is crazy. Um, Officer, we're sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, let's thank you, Paul, for going through that. I'm sure that was a very difficult time for you and your family. You you don't deserve that. Um, and let, let's take it a slightly different direction. Um, tell us, like, you, you wrote a fucking book. Like, are you proud of it? What's What are you proud of about it? What is What has been the good part about this process? Um, I mean, the good part of it is has been... Um, just doing the thing um you know like i'm kind of old enough to feel that like i just get enjoyment out of like the thing being out there right and um i liked you know i don't know i just kind of like nerding out for you know 300 pages or whatever it was um for 110,000 words um there was a a lot of um desire on my behalf to quote unquote uh, go long on something for a long time. Um, and, you know, when you do stuff for publications, you're often at the mercy of the publication, right? Um, in terms of, you know, how you cover things and what you cover and, you know, they want you to ask specific things. Um, but when you're a writer and you, you, you author something, you know, it really is something that is very much what you want to do. Um, like you kind of take control of it and it kind of, it's your vision, right? You're like the Martin Scorsese of that thing, right? Um, and that's kind of what I had in my head a lot while I was working, you know, on it was just like thinking of great creatives that I admire um, and, and trying to do something that could be sort of judged as like a piece of art. Um, even though it was a biography and, you know, and it was very much like based in fact and journalism and stuff like that, you know, I, I wanted something that was like, you know, I'm just into art, you know, so I, I, you know, there was a couple of years of my life where I wasn't probably even doing shit really, you know, and I was just like going to museums and stuff and, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, that's like kind of what I'm, you know, inspired by, like, you know, um, painters and, you know, people just doing things that last so um but i haven't really had any i mean as far as like you know perks and shit I, there haven't been any you know I, I i unfortunately because of like a lot of the stuff around this book and the way it was um you know unfairly treated you know um i didn't get any of the things you get when you like put a book out it's like a big ego stroke for people, you know, mm -hmm. to be like, oh, I didn't even announce this book, you know, like I, everything for me was about just the thing itself. I didn't I didn't want to talk too much about it uh, before it came out um, because I grew up, you know, like playing basketball and stuff. And I always didn't like when people talked a lot before they played the game, <laughs> you know, um, I always felt that that was a sure recipe for disaster. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, you get, there's somebody on the sidelines just won't shut the fuck up and then they get on the court and they just get destroyed. <laughs> um, I just wanted to be like, you know, the person that doesn't say anything and just does like plays a good game. 
and people were like, God damn, that motherfucker really played the game. You know, like he can shoot, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I haven't really, um, you know, had any, anything like, you know, I, I, my life hasn't changed at all. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like in, in, in any sense, you know, um, I, I, maybe it will, you know, but um, yeah, I don't, <laughs> it just feels like I didn't even do anything to be honest with you. <laughs> now, that's super honest and that's all we can ask for. And I appreciate it. Maybe a get out of jail free card in New Jersey. Uh, maybe it gave me like, you know, the, the, an opportunity to really do some things where I get to connect with people, you know, like mm-hmm. and talk about it. Um, and that's been cool. And um, I think there's been good feedback, you know, from a sizable contingent of his fans. Like even today I was just on uh, looking at it, the Reddit that he has, like just like I think in the last two days, there's like five different threads on this book. You know, um, the book came out in January, right? So, um, and people like just going back and forth about how good it is and all this stuff. And yeah, I feel like it's cool. You know, I like that people thought it was, like I said, something else. Then they get it and they're like, oh, well, it's not really what I thought it was. Um, Mm. Like, and um, so that's been gratifying. And, you know, some people, some of his fans, you know, email me and like, you know, really complimentary. So that's, that's cool too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the main, the main thing has been, you know, if, if somebody picks it up, um, I always say, I don't, didn't really write this for like, you know, first week sales or even first year sales. Um, I was just looking at like Herman Melville, right. (laughs) (laughs) Moby Moby Dick sold like 500 copies while he was alive. I think, uh, well, I actually think it was more than that, but he made like a total of 500 bucks in his lifetime. Right. And yet, um, you know, people are still reading it. I never read it, but I'm just saying. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it made me, when you were telling that story, it made me think about, do you remember uh, Salman Rushdie? Yes. Uh, and, and how he kind of pretty much had to go into hiding after writing Satanic Verses because the uh, Islamic community was after him. So you're still alive, which um, is great to see. Next time you were, you were with the cops, you don't know about us. You don't know about what goes on in this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> um, as we round home here, uh, do you have another book in the works? Do you, are you thinking about uh, potentially profiling someone else or a different type of book? Like, do you have book two plans? Um, not really. I have a couple of things that I've um, been thinking about doing. Um, but, you know, I, I, I often feel like a lot of, you know, creative stuff's like kind of stumbling around in the dark and mm. just kind of seeing if you can find a light switch, right? Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the thing is, you know, I have to kind of stumble around and there's a few things sort of brewing. Um, but yeah, I don't know. You know, it's a good question. I Like, I think there would, some people in my corner right now would lo- would love if I, could have like a really good idea like strike when the iron's hot i'm like yeah i don't know man like i just i'm not really like that kind of person i don't mm. uh, um i wish i was more like uh career focused i'm just not you know what i'm saying like um like life is just too interesting to spend it thinking about what you're gonna do like you know mm. <laughs> um you know sometimes you just need to 
a little bit of while to just bounce around and just feel things out. Um, so yeah, I don't, I think if I, my next thing may not be a book. Uh, yeah. Like there is an energy that's leading me in a direction right now, but it's, you know, unfortunately, uh, it's not in the book space. Yeah. I'm excited to see what happens. And, uh, it was nice to spend some time with you and thank you very much again for your honesty and candor. It's just, it was, it was a cool talk. Thank you. Oh, yeah, thank you so man. much. I, I totally was not making that up about the, <laughs> the, 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 the cop. Um, I wish I could remember his name, um, but that is 100%. <laughs> if he reaches out on a DM or something, I'll get in. I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. connect everyone. Those yeah, because Nate, Nate is our cop liaison. I will not, I will not be talking to said, said law enforcement. Officer, I didn't know I couldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Pete. Appreciate it, man. All right. Appreciate it. Take care. Later. That was our conversation with Paul Cannon. I want to thank him for coming on. I always like a guest who is down to like tell the stories. Yeah. Like totally. tell us that story. What that one time you went to Foxy Brown's house? Tell us that story. Totally. That was a good cool uh, story. I kind of forgot about story. that until you brought that back up. That was actually really interesting. Yeah. It's, it's such uh, like a golden era of hip hop journalism when they would fly you places. Like, wait, oh like, my that, I'm only going to speak for myself here. I totally missed the boat on that part. <laughs> I actually saw this tweet that was kind of going viral among the writer bros today. It's like, uh, put your location in your, your actual location, not a joke in your Twitter biography, because a lot of editors are assigning stories based on where you are because they're not flying anybody anywhere. And I'm anywhere. Like, That's interesting. That's a sign yeah. of the times. There we go. Nate LeBlanc live from Los Angeles. Uh, <laughs> uh, Dave, as, as, a, as a fellow writer, um, did that freak you out, that story about his family being threatened around the, the release of the Mac Miller book? Certainly. I think when it gets into the realm of violence, like, get the fuck out of here. Like, you're way crossing the line, you know, unless unless like somebody wrote a hit piece on Mac, Mac Miller, which certainly is not, you know, Paul Cantor who's written for the New York Times is, is certainly going to do his research and approach it with a certain amount of respect. And when we talk to Paul, he's a fan of Mac. So it's like, that's what you want. You want a fan who is well-researched yeah. and well-experienced. Absolutely. Something that uh, didn't come up, I don't think specifically in either book, but like when you write for a huge publication like that, they fact check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. what makes it the New York Times or the New Yorker right. or whatever right. other right. huge legacy right. publication. Right. Like they have someone whose job it is to see if you lied. Right. And there was that right. whole wave of like, you know, um, Stephen Glass and those guys who were like uh, the fabulists. There was like a whole generation of bad journalists who like, you know, <laughs> kind of shook the uh, industry to its core. We're past that. Like it's, there, it's too easy to find out if someone said something or not. Anyway, I just... Right. Um, yeah. You could tell Paul was still upset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, yes. he definitely... Um, as he should be. Like, as he yes. should be. Unfair He's affected. It's, it's ridiculous. Certainly affected. Certainly affected. Yeah. In this day and age of the internet, though, it's like, fuck, dude, like, if you're that pissed off, like, go go check the facts yourself. You know, don't 
attack the writer's fucking family. Totally. Yeah. Unbelievable. No, in, insane. And it, and it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, I think hip hop in particular, and it's not limited to hip hop, but I think hip hop has always had a thing. Like, remember when uh, the source journalists were getting like threatened when they would give bad reviews, right? Yeah. So it's like hip hop's relation to criticism um, has been always physical. been, has always <laughs> yes, been physical. Totally. Uh, I do, because when I read criticism and other things, I never think about, ooh, I wouldn't want to see Keith Murray in person. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it, it's it's that one art not form. if I was talking about a later record. Yeah, right? <laughs> but not Beatles' thing. Um, yeah, so it's, it's very interesting, hip-hop's relation to um, with criticism and journalism. And I am happy that we are living in an age where legit serious books about subjects can be written. Shout out to uh, Lance Scott Walker. Shout out to Paul Cantor for doing the work. One more thing before we move on. Around the Doom thing, and again, this just got announced and it's yeah. just the first tweets about it and stuff yeah. like that, but people seem to be thinking that like, in order to legitimize this biography, some of the money that could right. potentially be made would need to go to his family. And that's not how books work. One, totally. they don't make any money. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's be, like, that'd like, be a bad scheme. It's yeah, like right, getting a right. sample cleared for like, let's just use an example of a doom record. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. Like, right. did he pay the stylistics <laughs> or whatever? Right. Like, I don't, totally. I don't to impugn exactly. the concept of sample. Yeah. You guys know how I feel about this. I just thought one thinking that there's going to be money in this right, like, right. is is insane like do you know no one signed a million dollar book deal yeah. now uh, not about doom. times that no. by seven billion people in the world and that's how many people are buying books um and two like that that something that's about someone would need to financially benefit them is like i don't i actually don't think people think that i think they're twisting their logic well in a knee-jerk reaction that doesn't make sense it's it's the the fear of profiteering is real. It's just the book is a weird place to start that conversation because right, right. there's like bootleg doom shit like flying around the world at a really rapid rate, right? Right. And Charlie like, Brown right. and the Doom Mask. You got to start yeah. there, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. For, for George Schultz and for Doom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Totally. Like who's getting paid there? So it's it's yeah, it's always interesting. But I think um, we when we become protective and to Dave's point, precious about our heroes to me we we cheapen them because right, like right they they were real ass people they had complex lives um i know that in some ways we treat them godlike but they they were like they were just people and so stories about real people um i think should be encouraged and we shouldn't like put barriers and people feeling afraid to do that type of work it's it seems they used to have the term warts and all Yep. Yes, yeah, yeah. You don't really hear totally. that much anymore. Totally, totally. <laughs> no, I mean, words are I, not allowed. <laughs> I, I wish there were 10 Doom books, you know, because then the yeah. good ones will surface, you know? Right. It's yeah. like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, right. I, I, at this juncture, everything is just like the one book right now. So I sort of get being careful with it. But again, if it's in good hands, and again, you know, we, we work and exist in, in these circles. So we know who is working on this stuff. And yeah. we, we would be the first to chastise it if it was. Oh, oh if, it, back, if it was somebody I mean? trash. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. Yeah. If it was somebody trash, then we, we would definitely um, invite them on the pod to talk about what <laughs> trash. We do some competition. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I want to thank everybody for tapping into uh, this writerly discussion this week. Um, as you know, we are on Twitter, the seventh circle of hell at Dad Bod Rap Pod. We are on IG, the sixth circle of hell at <laughs> Dad Bod Rap Pod. 
Uh, we are on Patreon, Heavenly Gates. I'm on through. <laughs> Heavenly Gate as in the cult, not the actual physical. <laughs> hey, and my guy was in Waco. My dude That's was true. in Waco. That's I true. held on to that joke the entire time because I'm mature. <laughs> but I wanted to make uh, fresh video jokes. Um, check us out on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash dadbodrappod. We have a robust conversation happening there. Nate just posted the latest episode, uh, episode of Fly Sporadic. Um, yes. I posted a new playlist today. Yes. So there are like, we're pushing towards uh, like 70 plus hours of content segments, music, oh, interesting. all yeah. kinds of things. Uh, not that anyone's counting. I am. Um, <laughs> of stuff that's just behind the paywall, $5 a month or more, uh, gets you into the pearly gates of uh, hip hop wisdom. So fuck with us there. And, you know, other than that, you can check for us every Thursday. We drop new episodes. Stab by Rap Hunt.